Welcome to the Austin Art Talk Podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, and I'm a photographer, podcaster, and writer, and I love art and artists, and I love asking questions and having real conversations. I have a curious nature, and I'm really interested in people, who they are deep down and why they do what they do, what do they love, and how did they get where they are, and where are they headed? Austin is a great city, and I'm grateful to be in the midst of so many talented and amazing artists and those that support them. If you don't want to miss an episode, be sure to subscribe where you listen and visit scottdavidgordon.com to learn more about me, other podcasts I produce, and to read my almost daily journal where I share my photography, thoughts and connections, and books that I'm listening to or reading. And reach out if you have an idea for your own podcast and don't really want to deal with the learning curve and all the equipment. Maybe I can help you make your dream come true. This episode is brought to you by one of East Austin's newest fine art galleries, Ivester Contemporary. Now an important part of the Canopy Creative Complex. Ivester is focused on connecting the Austin community with a diverse group of Texas-based artists and connecting those artists with a broader audience beyond the Lone Star State. The gallery has two rotating exhibition spaces and compelling new shows every month. Owner Kevin Ivester believes the arts offer a space and opportunity to form a deeper relationship to ourselves, our local community, and with the world. Come down to the gallery and join the conversation. You can follow the gallery on Instagram at Ivester underscore contemporary, I-V-E-S-T-E-R, and visit IvesterContemporary.com to make an appointment to see the latest exhibition in person. Now for the interview. Painter Sarah Jane Parsons' specialty is realistic portraits of people, landscapes, still lifes, and figure studies, all rendered beautifully in graphite or watercolor, although she did recently start learning how to work with oil paints. The incredible thing is that she creates all of her work while holding the paintbrushes and pencils in her mouth. At the age of 20, a spinal cord injury left her paralyzed from the neck down, but that did not stop her from getting a law degree working jobs combining legal and social work to help hundreds of people, traveling broadly, and pursuing anything that interests her, and cultivating a life that is joyful and creative. She is a proud member of the Association of Mouth and Foot Painting Artists, a great organization that helps artists with disabilities support themselves through creating artworks that are placed on products sold far and wide. Sarah Jane is such a sweet, driven, and passionate artist, and it was a joy to talk and spend some time with her and be inspired by her story, her resilience, and her dedication to being an artist. Here is Sarah Jane. All right, Sarah Jane, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's nice to see you and it's nice to hear you. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm pretty sure I met you on the Travis Heights Art Walk multiple years i came i I love that tour and it didn't happen last year did it Uh, or this year they did do some kind of virtual yeah okay trail but yeah i I mean travis heights if anyone doesn't know austin is a really beautiful neighborhood um just south of the river south of downtown and uh, a lot of beautiful homes Uh, it's a pretty small neighborhood and you can just walk around and all the artists in the neighborhood open their doors and it's wonderful it's wonderful to get to go into people's houses and their art studios uh it's really fun right i like to transform my whole 
I move all the rearrange the furniture in the living room and take it take all the existing art off the walls. Yeah. And just make the living room into a gallery space. Yeah, no, it's cool. And, and it's then fun. Yeah. It is a fun time. And then I also met you well, I mean I met you on the tour, but then I saw you again when you had a a little group show at Agave Print. I think that might have been the last mm-hmm. time I saw you. Yeah, that is. What, what when was that? Was that in 2019? 18, or? actually. Oh, that was tw- oh, wow, it's been a while. Okay. Well, fall of 2018. Yeah. Yeah, I invited two other mouth painters Yeah. to come and do a group show with me. Yeah, that was such a cool show. That was such a cool show. So, you're a watercolorist, and... You also use graphite, and I just found out walking in here that you've started using oil paint. Starting to learn oils. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. That's well, so cool. Yeah, it's been a really different experience because I'm so used to mixing. I'm such a color person. Yeah. And I'm so used to mixing my stuff and knowing what it's going to come out like. Right. And I'm not familiar enough with the pigments in oil and adding white instead of having the paper be the white. Yeah. To get my colors the way I think they're going to be. Yeah. And a lot of oil painters use like a kind of neutral, either actually a, you know, a wooden palette Mm -hmm. or a gray palette. And I just decided to try. I started out with gray. And I kept feeling like everything I was mixing was ending up so dark. Oh, yeah. And so I just switched. Today, I started using a white glass palette. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm having a little better luck with nice. feeling like I'm getting the colors that I want. I mean, that's so cool to me and kind of inspiring because it's like a whole new challenge for you. Um, Absolutely. It's like a whole new medium. Uh, I mean, I wonder what uh, inspired you to push yourself further into this new medium? Well, one, I think as an artist, you're always learning. Yeah. And I started, because of the pandemic, uh, an artist, Frank Eber, that I had taken a watercolor workshop from Mm. years ago, was offering like sort of teacher slash mentor opportunities for people. And so, since I'd already taken a workshop from him in watercolor, I really liked, and I really like his work. Yeah. And I knew that he painted in both watercolor and oil, but I was really thinking I was going to concentrate on watercolor because I keep feeling like, well, that's what I need to do because I want to get really good at that. You yeah. Know? If I like spread myself out yeah, painting right. in all different kinds of medium, then yeah, what's going to happen, you know? So... I was worried. I met with him the first time and he said, look, you know, the angle that you like to paint is not going to work for the way that I paint watercolor. Oh, interesting. Because he said, it's just, I work a lot of wet into wet and I do as well, but I do it in a really controlled way. Yeah. But he paints almost flat, which a lot of, I would say probably the majority of watercolorists do. But because I paint using my mouth... Hold, to hold the brush, I can't. So the work is more vertical. I have to. Yeah. I have to have my work more at an angle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so my water drifts down the page, and I, I've accommodated that, you know, and I learned how to work with that, and oh, I know yeah. how to not. I learned how to not end up with you know all the drips coming down the page yeah. because it's staying wet at the bottom, you know, and I'm sure it's just intuitive and unconscious at this point mm-hmm. that. 
I know how fast it's drying at the top as opposed to the bottom, you know? Wow. I hadn't even thought of that as being a challenge because I'm not that familiar with painting watercolor. But I now that I think about it, some of the ones I know, like Jan Heaton or something, like, like she always paints flat. Yeah. People paint flatter at a very slight tilt. Yeah. You know, and people do like to pick up their work and tilt it around to make the paint run and like either run back if it's wet enough or... You know, just mix the colors on the paper. Yeah. And those types of things I just don't do. Yeah. And so Frank Ebert just said, you know what? There's all these water-soluble oil paints that are in existence now. You don't mm-hmm. have to use all the stinky turpentine and... Oh, yeah, for, for oil. Right? For oil. Yeah. So because I work so closely to my work, I can't stand back at arm's length, yeah. you know? I've always avoided doing anything that needed solvents. But now that there's all this odorless stuff and that I can have the brushes cleaned with just soap and water, you don't, you don't use water to thin the paints. Yeah, right. Um, even though they're water soluble, but it just means you can clean them, clean your brushes easy. That's cool. Yeah. So he said, look, I don't think I can teach you much in watercolor because of the angle that you work, but. Have you ever thought about using oils? Yeah. I said, I'm happy to teach you oil painting 101, and I right. can teach you how I paint. And he said, I think you're going to really like it because it stays wet so long. You can manipulate the paint in ways that you can't yeah. manipulate the watercolor. And you get instant texture, Yeah, which doesn't happen with watercolor either. But you did pretty much, I don't know if you'd say master, but I mean, you've... Mastered watercolor in a sense, I've, don't you think? I mean, I before a, you got to to oils, you know. Yeah, I, I've <laughs> spent a lot of hours with watercolors. Yeah, I don't know how many. I don't know if I hit my ten thousand hour yeah. mark, but I have definitely spent a lot of time with watercolor. Yeah, and you uh, and for, I still love it. I still love it, but yeah. right now I'm really excited about learning whatever I can about oil. Yeah. And for anyone that hasn't seen your work, you call it uh, contemporary realism. So it's very, just, it's a realistic uh, portraits, objects, landscapes. Landscapes. Yeah. Really beautiful. Really beautiful. And when people really, and when we really get into how you do it, I think people are going to be even more impressed. Um, So I guess we should get into your story about how you even became an artist. I mean, that's a, it's a huge thing. Well, I was definitely a kid who liked to make things. I spent, you know, I was born in the 60s. I'm a child of the 70s. Everything at camp was always tie-dye and batik and macrame and ceramics. And I was always, and my best friend and I drew a whole series of drawings, which I still have. Oh, cool. Um, We were obsessed with reading anything about Pioneer Girls or... yeah. Anything having to do with like the beginnings of this country. And so we would sit and we would decide, okay, we're going to do a portrait of Miriam the milkmaid. And then we'd both like draw this, what we considered a pioneer girl carrying a milk bucket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've always, you know, I took art all through Mm. junior high. I always made friends with my art teachers. And so... After the car accident, yeah. well, prior to that, really, I felt like my art was more in the textile, sewing, okay. knitting realm, and 
I was really kind of excited about learning actually how to like start with raw wool and learn how to spin it and yeah. dye it and so you had this creative knit. bent so, all along kind uh, of wanting always, to make or create always something. wanting to make but you've also made a comment in some of the interviews of seeing that exist that you say you're a jock at heart too so you were also into f- sports and a lot of physical oh, stuff too absolutely yeah. i was pretty much yeah i swam competitively since age 5 oh wow and then took kind of a break but then all through junior high and high school yeah and then I learned how to row when I was an exchange student in the Netherlands. Oh, cool. And that was really cool. I also learned how to windsurf there. I was already, you know, growing up in Minnesota from age 10 on. Yeah. I knew how to canoe. I, you know, and then I introduced windsurfing to the whole family. And um, once we moved to Minnesota from Iowa, then I learned how to cross-country ski and downhill ski and I always I rode a bike ever since I was little, little. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of figured, you know, I'd never own a car because I'd either get somewhere yeah. via my my own Locomotion. <laughs> Locomotion, yeah. Yeah, either a bicycle or I'd walk or I'd, you know, I'd figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Cross-country ski if I was in Sweden. I don't know. <laughs> they still get around that way yeah. in the winters. So the so, car accident kind of set that all back. And so you were 20. Yeah, I was 20 when I was rear-ended in a really overpacked small little car heading for the Boundary Waters canoe area. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with Mm-mm. that, but it's a really lovely, um, I guess, I don't know if it's actually, I guess maybe it's a state park. Yeah. I'm not sure, but it's literally on the boundary of Minnesota and Canada. Right. And you have to pack everything in and everything out. No motors allowed. Oh, wow. You can only get around by canoe or kayak. It's quite adventurous. And they have, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's, you know, it's all pretty primitive campsites. They only allow a limited number of people in. Mm-hmm. So actually now during COVID, they were able to like keep that open because oh, wow. it's not like anybody's yeah. going to camp anywhere close to anybody else. Wow, that's really cool. So that was really, I thought, a boon yeah. for anybody willing to camp. Sure. But we got rear-ended, and I was the only one that was hurt, and my neck got broken, dislocated, basically. Yeah. And so that, you know, just began a big rehab process. Right. And once I was finally out of the hospital and out of rehab, it was pretty rough. Yeah. It was really rough. I know you mentioned something about a long, dark Yeah, I really did not know what I was going to do with my life. Wow. Or how I was going to make it. Yeah. And then my junior high art teacher, whom I stayed friends with, suggested that we go to this little afternoon watercolor painting workshop where we're going to paint flowers. Mm-hmm. It was just a one-day thing. And I was like, sure, why not? Yeah. And so we went and we were both kind of disappointed. Yeah. Because <laughs> we both had this idea that we were each going to be like, given a flower and we were going to sit and learn how to paint a flower. And instead, the young woman who was teaching us, we did a color wheel, which was useful. Yeah. Color wheels are always nice to practice. But then instead of having even a real thing, she just did a painting out of her head. Okay. Of a blue vase with some twigs and 
made up flowers in it. Yeah. And we were just supposed to copy along with her and some leaves, I think. And so she taught us some things, but it was really like, oh, I thought we were going to like have a rose or something. Yeah. And actually paint something from life instead of just copy somebody. And so even at that time, how were you painting? Well, so while I was in rehab, I was really sad that none of my muscles really came back. Yeah. My neck was broken at C4-5. And so that's pretty much right in the middle. Yeah. You have seven cervical bones. So if any of your neck bones are hurt, it's going to impair your arms and your hands. So I'd read a lot of, you know, kind of survival stories at some point as a child, you know, like young people going blind or like the Jill Kinmont story. Don't know if you're familiar Mm -mm. with that. But she was a, I want to say maybe even Olympic skier, but she was just skiing on Mammoth Mountain in California and had a ski accident and broke her neck. And so she had a biography slash maybe autobiography mm-hmm. called The Other Side of the Mountain about mm. how she'd been the skier and then now she was learning how to like become a person with a major disability. Yeah. And so I knew right away what had happened to me because of reading stories like that also my dad's an anatomy professor and my mom's a physical therapist oh wow so i come from a really medical family yeah and my mom worked with disabled kids while she was working as a physical therapist so so you weren't in denial about it you knew what had happened but i was also like because of being a jock at heart i was also like the first thing i said to my mom when she came into the hospital was like, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Because I was just ready to like, okay, I can do it. Whatever wow. needs to happen, I can make it, you know? I'll be like Jill Kinmont. I'll like, st- I'll work hard and I'll be able to feed myself and brush my teeth and do all the things and we'll figure it out. And yeah. then it was really hard to adjust to the idea that, nope, nothing's really going to change. Wow. You're not gonna get any muscles back your spinal cord was really damaged yeah that was really hard yeah and my occupational therapist handed me a pen one day because i just i was like i want to do arm exercises like that guy over there and i want to work up my muscle you know and she's like well we can try you know and my physical therapist was doing electric stem on me and we were doing everything we could do but it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So she handed me a pen and was just like, let's, just a marker. You know, she's like, and at that point, my neck was not mobile. It was being mm. held fast yeah. so that it could heal. I'd had a fusion surgery. And once that happens, they can't put a cast on your neck, but they put, it really, it looks like a medieval torture device, but it's called a halo because they put a metal circle literally around your skull yeah that holds it still that yeah it's like it's got four little prongs that are held like by your skull literally oh wow and then there's four bars that go down from this halo into a jacket Mm. like a little plastic yeah padded thing it's basically a brace for you to keep your neck extremely still yeah so i started learning how to write my name. I was just doing my initials by holding a pen 
and not moving my head at all because I couldn't. Oh, wow. Yeah. And just guiding the pen with my lips. Yeah. And I had so much fun. Oh, doing that. Okay. That day. Cause I was just like, Oh my gosh, I did it's something. something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did something. So then once I got that silly halo off, like writing was really easy. And then, yeah. and then working with watercolor was even easier because it's just so fluid and it flows and it's lightweight. And even though I'm holding stuff in my mouth. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big stress. It wasn't stress. It wasn't, ti- yeah. it wasn't mm-hmm. tiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's basically, it was just like that need to still make something and do something on my own because here was all of a sudden something I could do myself Yeah, without a lot of help once I was set up. And I'm sure back then you didn't have all the technology that you have now either, did you? So it probably that made it harder. Well, and I also had to like, figure out what I needed for what I was doing as well. So I ended up, I mean, school's a great place for people with disabilities. It's kind of a, kind of an equal playing field, you know, everybody's in class, everybody's seated yeah, and you're just part of all the students, you know? So I went back, I finished my undergrad in international relations with a minor in Dutch Super wow. useful for any, <laughs> super useful for any job you may ever want. Yeah. Um, and then decided, okay, I don't know what to do with myself now that I'm not in school. So I did, I worked at the Utney Reader as an intern. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that magazine, but they're out of Minneapolis. So I did an internship with them. Mm-hmm. And then I worked at a shelter for battered women and their children. Wow. And Realized like, okay, I like this idea of kind of social work, kind of legal advocacy. And I felt like at that point then, okay, I want to do, I don't want to be somebody writing about people doing great things in the world like that new reader. I want to be somebody doing great things in the world. So I went to law school. Oh, wow. And I only applied to one place because I was told when I was in rehab that Berkeley had, UC Berkeley in California, mm-hmm. had a good disabled students program. And so post-accident, after moving back from my lovely college roommate situation apartment, yeah, back into my parents' house, which was also difficult. Yeah. I decided to move 1,900 miles away and learn how to live independently. Wow. <laughs> and go to law school at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Which was really pretty hilarious because to me, the hard part was learning how to really be independent of my family. And law school was like a break from yeah. figuring out how to like train people to help me take care of my body, even though I'd already been doing some of that, but my mom helped me a lot. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I figured that she would. Yeah, my mom helped me a lot. Was she mad when you said you wanted to leave, or was she worried about No, she was just worried. Yeah. Really, really worried. Yeah. But, yeah, she came to visit soon after I got there, and, you know, I I went back, school breaks, I would fly back. Mm -hmm. And that was also an interesting experience, like, Flying 
by myself back to Minnesota because I had people who could help me once I was back in Minnesota. So I actually had one flight where we're flying from San Francisco to Minneapolis. And right before we were going to land, the weather got really bad in Minneapolis. And they were talking about how because of the snow, it was Christmas break. Yeah. We might have to land in Chicago. Ay, ay, ay. And I was on this plane all by myself. Wow. And I thought, what am I going to do if we land in Chicago? Yeah. And I can't get home. Mm-hmm. No, there's nobody to meet. I still, to this day, I have no idea. Like, I've thought about it. Like, well, I mean, the airline's not going to just ditch me. And they will get me off the plane. And I will get in my wheelchair. And then what do I do? I don't know. Yeah. You know? I didn't know if I would call a hospital. Yeah, right. I have no idea. Yeah, or call your parents to drive all the way there to pick you up or something. I mean, it would have been a lot. That would have been a lot. Yeah, Yeah. it would have been something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these all these things that that, uh, able-bodied people don't think about, maybe. (laughs) These situations that you can find yourself in. Luckily, we didn't have to land in Chicago, and we landed in Minneapolis. Yeah, that's good. That was funny. Well, I'm really impressed with your just um, your drive to keep going. I mean, like you said, you've had some dark times too. I mean, how did you how did you get out of those dark times and just maintain this drive to like yeah, like you said, move 1,900 miles, go to law school, live on your own, all this. You know, like some people, I'm sure, probably get pretty discouraged and want to give up. I don't know. Like I, I can't even imagine. I think I just have always wanted to have a life. Yeah. And be a part of life and the world as much as I can be. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of why, yeah, I just, I had to keep going. Yeah. I'm a social person. I wanted to see my friends. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to them. I wanted to do as much as I could. I mean, and I've tried lots of, you know, I still love swimming. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, my partner, husband, person. Yeah. <laughs> and I love going to Krause Springs. That's our favorite place. Yeah, I love it there. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's easy for him with an attendant. Like we get me from the chair to a mat on the side of the pool. And then Jimmy jumps in the pool and just swoops me up and we can be in the water together. And it's so nice. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That water there is kind it's, of magical. Yeah. I love it there. Yeah. So you went to law school then? So I went to law school and stayed in the Bay Area, which is where I was born. And it took me a while to find a part-time job because I realized while I was in law school, I really didn't want to try to work full-time. Because even part-time in a law job is often like 40 hours a week. Yeah. yeah. And just the stress of that and the idea that that would be the only thing mm-hmm. that I would be able to do in a day would be like to get up and get to work and work as hard as I could. Just grind all day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Work as hard as I could to do what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. That would take me more time than it would take anybody else. Yeah. And then go home and eat dinner and go to bed because I had to just get up again. Like law school was so much easier than actually working as a lawyer. 
Um, yeah. So I knew I wanted to work part time. And it took me a while to find a job, but I finally did at an AIDS service organization. And so I worked with clients with HIV and AIDS. Mm. And I kind of did a blend of both like, like I wanted legal work and social work. Yeah. And a lot of education, like teaching people how they could help themselves. Yeah. I worked with Medicaid and Social Security and SSI and helping people get, by then the ADA had been passed. So making sure people got accommodations at work, making sure that employers were paying people yeah. their commissions, even and, if yeah. for work they'd done, even though now they were out sick, you know? Or adapting their buildings or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of that. And was there any art during this time at all? By that point, I started painting. So that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I started painting in the fall of my last year of law school. Okay. Because I think part of my brain was completely starved. Yeah. Right. Because all I was doing was reading and writing and studying. Mm -hmm. So as a break to all of that, I started painting the sunflowers in my garden outside my door. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it. And at that point, a woman who was working with me as an attendant told me, get good paint, get good colors. She had an undergrad degree in art. And she said, you'll just be disappointed if you don't yeah. work with good materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what I did. And I fell in love. Yeah. And I was like, well, no matter what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. So then I knew after law school that I wanted to go visit a friend in South America to work on my Spanish because I felt like it would help me wow. get a job. So I went and spent a few months with a college friend of mine who had moved to Uruguay. And so I worked on my Spanish in order to be able to like be more employable. Yeah. Because I knew I wanted to do something in the legal services vein. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And I did end up using my Spanish quite a bit at work, even though we did have a Spanish speaker Yeah. Um, at the Marin AIDS Project. That's where I worked. And if Eric wasn't there, I was the go-to Spanish person. So nice. That worked out well. That's very cool. But while I was there, I met a lovely person and... I decided, well, okay, I'd want him to remember me. So he gave me such a lovely visit, like 10 days I spent with him in a little beach town mm -hmm. that we'd gone to. And so I decided, and he had inherited this little house from his grandparents and had a beautiful little rose garden and had a dog with puppies. And it was all, it was just like this lovely yeah. enchanted place. <laughs> and I had been at a bar the night before. This is where I met him. I'd been at a bar that opened at one in the morning and closed at five. Oh, wow. Okay. And so <laughs> some drunk guy was hassling me. I was in a manual wheel wheelchair. Yeah. And so this guy was bothering me and Pedro would come over and then that guy would disappear. And so he's like, he's harmless. He's drunk. I was like, yeah, but he's really getting to me. Yeah. Because he was like kneeling on the floor in front of me and like grabbing the armrests on my wheelchair, you know, yeah. just being too much in my space. Yeah. And 
so Pedro was like, let's just go outside and talk then. And so we did, and we made an agreement to meet the next day at four in the afternoon. He wanted to take me on a walk around town. And I was like, okay, great, sure, I'll do it. And then the next day, after staying at the club till five in the morning and getting up at noon, I was like, oh, man, why did I say I would do that? Yeah. Like, this guy's going to come. He's going to, like, be in some, like, beach mode, you know? Yeah. Probably won't even have a shirt on. He's going to be some macho South American guy. And yeah. What am I going to do? <laughs> what seemed like a good idea at four in the morning might not yeah. be so great at four in the afternoon. Yeah. But he came and he first took me all around town and introduced me to so many people hmm. that I already kind of met because one was a grocer, one was at a restaurant, you know. But then he took me to his house and he picked all these roses from his garden and stuck roses all over my chair. Oh, wow. And decorated my whole chair in roses. And then he wanted me to see the the name of the town is Aguas Dulces, like sweet water, but it's a beach town. Yeah. And so he wanted to he wanted me to see the lake that the town was named for. And he and his uncle had created these trails at this land that had been preserved because of the lake. Oh wow. And so he kind of helped m- make the park. Yeah. So he also wanted to show me that. And it wasn't easy going cuz the trails are sand. Wow. And he was like hauling logs off the trail, hauling palm fronds off the trail. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then tipping me back on the back two wheels and like pushing, as I suspected, shirtless and yeah. in <laughs> like beach shorts and flip flops. Yeah, yeah. And nobody except like my brother and my cousin who lives here in town actually. Preston yeah. had ever put so much effort into making sure I got to see some special site. Yeah. And so I kind of fell for him at that moment. Yeah. Because I was like, wow, he really wants me to see this lake. This is kind of amazing. And everybody that I've already met in this town that I like, he is, of course, friends with and knows because he's from this town. Yeah, yeah. And so when I got home, I wanted to like do something to thank him for showing me such a good time. Yeah. And so I decided to paint a little picture of his house. Oh, nice. So I did this little, since I'd already done the sunflower painting, and I was pleased with that. This was right, you know, I'd already taken the bar, I'd passed the bar, went to South America, came home, started looking for work and painting. Mm Mm-hmm. And... The woman who worked with me, who had the undergrad degree in art, when I finished my little painting of Pedro's house, as I like to call it, yeah, she was like, Sarah Jane, that's a really good painting. You're a fool to send that off. And I was like, no, I painted it for him. This way, I know, one, he's going to really love it, and I'm going to frame it, and I'm going to send it, and yeah. then he can never forget me, because yeah. I'm going to have this, he'll have this little painting of his house that he loves. Nice. On his wall, so it'll be there. That's I'll make really it. Cool. So I did make a print of it before I sent it yeah. off. But this woman, Odessa, told me, Sir Jane, I think you really have an eye. You should pursue You this. should yeah. continue painting. Yeah. Whatever you do, you should continue painting as well. Yeah. And so I did. And then she would regularly like give me some tips or ideas and 
at one point I did a figurative painting and I did it all in Payne's grade. So it was just like a value study, basically. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, if you want to work with figures, you should really take a figure drawing class. Mm. And so I did an adult ed figure drawing class and I got somebody to make me a table that was mobile. So I would, so I had an easy way to work. Yeah. Yeah. Because I couldn't really expect any place that I was going to be set up for yeah, me. Right. And by that point, also, my brother in law and I had it invented this little brush holder mm. that I've got there on my table. Yeah. Because I had been just putting my brushes in a little vase, which then kinks the bristles down at the bottom, but I didn't know what else, you know? Yeah. I didn't know how else to like have a variety of sizes mm-hmm. set up for me. Yeah. But my brother-in-law was like, hey, what if we do this? And then it's height adjustable and angle adjustable and cut little notches in it so I could just two dowels parallel to each other. Oh, wow. And just slide the brushes in between and then they'll stay yeah. at a height that I can reach. So I took the figure drawing class and completely fell in love mm. and that became my new sport yeah because the way most figure drawing classes go even if it's going to be a long pose you start out with a bunch of gestures yeah and i love gestures i love doing the two minute poses because i can't sit and be picky and meticulous yeah, you just have to move. about anything yeah. you just have to do it mm-hmm. and i just started it was amazing i'd never like fallen so in love with anything ever wow. before in my life. If I wasn't drawing, I, I found, you know, once that class ended, I found public groups that I could go to. Yeah. You know, kind of like AVAA drawing sessions here in town. Yeah. Um, I found public groups I could go to, and I was drawing all my friends, getting anybody to model for me. Oh, cool. Um, if I wasn't drawing, I was like literally dreaming about it. Yeah. And so while still doing legal work, right? Well, this was this was before getting the job. So once I got oh, the okay. job, once I got my job, then I was restricted to going <laughs> just going to two drawing sessions a week. Oh, and, okay. Cuz you were so busy. Yeah. yeah. And even though I was working part-time, I had 80 clients and Wow. It was it was still a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. But I worked Monday through Thursday, Thursday night drawing and then Sunday afternoon drawing. Nice. So. And how many years did that last? And then at that point, at that point I was using graphite and watercolor and then doing longer watercolor paintings just at home in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Well, that basically lasted till I moved here. Yeah. When I decided, okay, I can't do law work anymore. I can't live in the Bay Area anymore because it was just every time I caught a cold, I was ending up with pneumonia, and oh, wow. my health was just not good. I had to get to a new climate. Yeah. And yeah. my favorite cousins live here in town. Oh, okay. Cool. And so, that was 2004. That's when you moved here. And when does the um, Association of Mouth and Foot Painting Artists come into the picture? Well, so once I moved here, um, I found some groups, you know, AVAA, but also some private uh, figure drawing groups that I could be a part of. Mm-hmm. And that was a nice way to meet with people. And then one year I decided that I'm just going to join associations because 
that's a good way to also meet people and also hear about opportunities to show your work. Yeah. Because by that point, I had decided, okay, people could be asking me, do you show your work? Do you show your work? Nah. Yeah. Nah. Oh, really? I just do it for myself. Nah. And I really, I wanted my work to stand alone. I wanted my work to be good. Not because I painted it by holding a brush in my mouth, but because it was good work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I finished my painting of Pedro's house, you know, my little seven-year-old friend was like, mm, yeah, pretty good for doing it with your mouth. <laughs> okay. And so I wasn't, I wasn't ready to associate myself with a group where it was going to be about people with disabilities making art. Oh, yeah. Because I wanted my art to stand alone. Yeah. But in my year of deciding I was joining associations, I decided, okay, I'm ready. You know, I'm going to yeah. go ahead because this looks like a great organization and they offer a lot of support to the artists that they take on. And it's actually, it was a much more rigorous process than mm. I knew to be accepted by them. Wow. I literally, somebody came here to look at my setup, to look at how I work, to wow. see if I was actually serious as an artist because yeah. they want to help people who want to make art yeah. their career. And that's when I really, really started working in earnest because all of a sudden I had all this support. Yeah. And... Just a little background about them. They started in 1957. There's at least 800 artists that are included now. And um, one of their, kind of one of their taglines on their website is self-help, not charity. That's like their big thing on their yeah. website. Um, so the artists that are part of the association, their art is used to make Christmas cards and prints and puzzles, and then the sales support the artists All as a us. business. Yeah. It's like a business. And every publishing house, I mean, there's publishing houses around the world, and every publishing house does its own collection of stuff. I mean, there's beyond like mugs and cards and calendars. There, I mean, with COVID, Great Britain was doing face masks. They're putting oh, people's yeah. designs on masks. They do wrapping paper, note cards. Um, all occasion cards, um, you name it, yeah. somebody, like either in Japan or Malaysia or Europe, wherever. Yeah. Every publishing house kind of puts together their own collection of things that are yeah. available. Yeah. Um, all based on designs provided by all of us. Yeah. Painting either by holding brushes in our mouths or holding brushes in our feet. And some people do both. Oh, yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually that uh, when I was doing a lot of research, I came across this the famous movie that I haven't actually watched. I've seen quite a few clips from it, My Left Foot. I mean, that's about an artist who paints with his foot. Yeah. Um Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. When he was much younger. Wow, it's a real that's the clips that I saw were really powerful. Uh how hard his life was. But, yeah, uh, it's a it's a good movie. It's worth watching. Yeah. So when you moved to Austin, did you give up the legal stuff? I did. Okay. I did. I needed to like not have that much stress in my life. Yeah. Not feel that I had that much responsibility mm -hmm. to other people. I needed to just 
take a break and get my health back. Yeah. And Austin's done that for me. Yeah. For sure. And when did you start thinking of yourself as an artist? Maybe all along, I don't know. Or was there a point where you're like, okay, I'm an artist? Sometimes I'm still like, <laughs> do I actually write that on? Do I write that? I think I'm an artist now because I've been yeah. selling my work. Yeah. I think because it sounds like such a big, lovely, amazing thing. And yeah, I'm not always the best at wagging my own tail. Yeah. So, there but you is put that. in the work for sure and you love it. Right? I, love I mean, it. do you love I, anything I, I, more than I painting don't. and drawing? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and when did you meet Jimmy? Don't tell Jimmy that. Um, Jimmy and I met in. January of 2005. Okay, so after and you moved to Austin. So after I moved here, and we met at Rudamaya Coffee Shop. I don't know if you yeah, yeah. remember that when it was back here, just off of South Congress. I do remember. Mm-hmm. And I was there with a friend. There was a breakdancing competition going on. Oh, wow. That's and so cool. I was like, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll go. And so I just saw this bright, shiny person across the room from me. Like leaning on an amp, but I was like, "Wow, who's this lovely person?" Yeah. And then he saw me looking at him, and so he came over to say hello. And I was like, "Oh no, yeah. that wasn't my intent." Ah! Yeah. Yeah. But he came over, and then when he introduced himself, we both kind of had the same feeling of like, "Wow, you're an, an amazing person," but we can't really talk to each other. So yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. But the universe was like, mm, let's give it another try. Yeah. So then we ran into each other a few months later in the parking lot of Wheatsville. Oh, okay. He gave me a big hug, as he does everybody that he knows. Yeah. And I introduced him to my sister who was visiting at the time. And we still were both of the same mind, like, nice, but we can't really talk. Yeah. And then... Because he's deaf. He's deaf. He's and he knows, I think from one of your interviews, you talk about home sign, which is home not... Home sign or gestural language. Okay. Or, so it's he not wasn't raised with ASL. ASL. Yeah, right. And he's got some Native American in him, so he's looked at a lot of Native American trade signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trade sign languages. And so he's incorporated that into his language. Wow. And... Yeah, he he really just speaks JSL. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy sign language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you had really to learn intu- that. <laughs> it's really intuitive. So then we ran into each other a third time and actually had a conversation and I realized like this is just like learning Spanish. It's like yeah. learning any other language. Yeah. Like I can't use my hands, but I use you know, we managed to have a conversation and so we set up a date and then that was that after that. Nice. Yeah, he is such a sweet guy. I mean, the sweetest. Yeah. Um, so I'll just want I want to say one quick thing before we move on about the um MFPA and people should definitely check out that website mfpausa.com if you want to support um these artists uh say help they want to help disabled artists attain self-respect, creative fulfillment and financial security. That's pretty awesome. You know, there was one thing that you mentioned, I think, in some interview that I read or saw a video. Um, you said, is this right? You said something about exploring what it, it what it means to be human. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I feel like for me, because 
so much of my life, I'm limited in so many ways. Yeah. So I feel like it's a way that I can still, like, connect with people and express what I want to express or try to show people how I see the world, even though it's not necessarily about anything to do with my disability. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it's still, I'm still a part of the larger world, even though I have a profound disability. Yeah. I'm not stuck somewhere yeah. in an institution or unable to do anything with my life. And I get to keep on keeping on. I get to meet new artists. We meet, especially now during the pandemic, like I've met with artists from Great Britain and just the U.S. using FaceTime and mm. and the video chat via Facebook. Just that be becoming an artist and becoming the person that I've become that I even met Jimmy. Yeah. And that changed my life. Yeah. I had pretty much convinced myself I would never find a partner because mm. I'm a lot to take on. Yeah. But my first boyfriend after the accident, his dad told me that one, I was the best girlfriend his son had had. Yeah. And two, he told his son, she's fiercely independent. It's going to take you. You're going to have to make some effort here. Son. Yeah. Yeah. So you never know. I don't know. Regardless, I feel like by becoming an artist, it's helped me to become who I am. And it's helped me to accept my, not that I didn't love my body, mm -hmm. but going to figure drawing and drawing every type mm -hmm. of person's body yeah, just was such a powerful thing for me uh, to realize that everybody really, truly is beautiful. Yeah, And that's what I... That's why I'm so still in love with figurative work and portraits, and that's why I'm working on portraits now and working on doing portraits in oil yeah, instead of watercolor and seeing where that gets me. Yeah, that's, a, that's an exciting new adventure for sure, and a new challenge. Like, what, uh, what are the biggest challenges you're finding with that, learning that? Um. The extra effort, like actual, just like muscle effort it takes okay. to like mix the paint. Yeah. As opposed to just like grabbing some paint and some water and mixing it. Mm -hmm. It's more, it's definitely more work to mix it up. Yeah. But I want to mix it myself because I want to, I want to create my own colors, you know? Yeah. And I need to be in control of that. Right. And that's partly for me, art is something I can, largely do independently that I didn't do before becoming disabled. Though I drew as a kid, the art that I was involved with as a young adult was much more textile oriented. Yeah. yeah. And so painting and drawing wasn't something I thought I could ever really do. Yeah. So it was magic to me to find out I could do this. Yeah. And I still surprise myself. Yeah. And I'm still amazed that I'm doing this. Yeah, really? And I'm still amazed that <laughs> I have the support of the mouth and foot painting artists. Yeah. They're helping me to be who I am. Mm. And it's, I can't thank them enough and think how lucky it was that 
I decided that year I needed to join some association. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, you're saying what you're saying, be who I am. It's not even that you should be something else or should have been who you were going to be before the accident. You're trying to just be who you are right now and accept who you are and, and make the most of it, I guess. Yeah. I've really, I really work hard at not comparing myself to other people because that's just a game that gets you nowhere. Yeah. Right. And I will forever be working on just doing the best I can with what I've got. Yeah. Yeah, when it, you know, something you said earlier made me think about limits. And I just, I wonder how you think about limits because I I feel like, I feel inspired by just all the things that you've done in your life post-accident that a lot of people that aren't disabled wouldn't do. You know, like going to Mexico to work on their Spanish or going to get a law degree in, you know, thousands of miles away from their family who are helping them. Um, adjust. I mean, how do you, it just seems like you don't see those limits, you know, it's so inspiring. I guess, I guess I just don't really, I mean, obviously I have to think about limits to some degree, but I also feel like we, we're all limited in whatever way we're limited. Yeah. You know, mine's just more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really just a head game. Yeah. We limit ourselves in so many different ways. And if you can clear that and just go forward with what makes you happy, yeah, you'll be fine. Yeah. I think there's the whole, the classic, and I've used this line so many times, like getting in your own way, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and that is, a, it's all in your head a lot of times. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, and I, I and I do that both like, when I just remember studying for the bar, getting frustrated, getting stressed, worrying that I wasn't being able to do all the practice tests that everybody else was doing. And I just had to remind myself, Sergeine, you're doing what you can do. Hmm. Stop thinking about everybody else and just do what you can do. Yeah. And my mom raised all of us. There's five kids in my family. Her, one of the things that she stood by always. I mean, that can vary from day to day, but just do the best you can with what you've got. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Wow. So, here I am. It's impressive. Doing the best that I can. Yeah. And I, like I said, I want to have a life. I'm alive. I'm here. Yeah. I want to experience whatever I can. Yeah. And that's what I mean, too, about exploring the human Mm-hmm. experience and what it means to be human like whatever there is in life i want to do it yeah if i can do you if feel I can like make it happen yeah do you feel like disabled people too often are dismissed and just kind of I forgotten or shuffled off to the i side? think it's really difficult and i think a lot of people also i mean you need to have good assistance. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are held back by our healthcare system mm. and not being able to pay people to assist them with their daily life. Yeah. Enough so that people can actually do the personal care work and be compensated adequately. Yeah. So, 
I think that limits people with disabilities a lot because you need to be able to get up to be able to do anything and you need to be able to eat and you need to be able to go to bed. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to use the bathroom and all of those things Mm -hmm. you need assistance with. And if you need assistance, you need good people who can help you. And if you want to have good people who can help you, you need to be able to pay them. Yeah. And if, you know, our healthcare system, I'm lucky enough to have some extra money, but our healthcare system isn't paying people enough to help people. Yeah. Be able to be whoever they can be. Yeah. Hmm. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Though Biden says he's going to make some changes with that, and I hope that. Yeah. I hope that's true. So, what are you looking forward true. to? Yeah, me too. What are you looking forward to? What excites you? Working on my oils. Yeah. Working on my oils. Mm-hmm. And traveling since I haven't gone anywhere since the pandemic started. I love to travel. My dad lives in Montana, so that's my plan. Oh, cool. Over the summer, I want to make a good road trip up to Montana. Nice. Which is about a 30-hour drive from here in Austin. Yeah. To where he is, like the upper northwest corner of Montana. And when you travel like that, does that inspire even more ideas for paintings? Like, do you take pictures and... Oh, landscapes yes. and plants landscapes, and plants, people flowers people yeah. <laughs> yeah but i also really enjoy like i'm inspired a lot by just especially when it comes to portraits like people around me hmm. like i'm working on what i'm calling now the lizzie project you just met lizzie yeah my niece she's been working her butt off since gosh junior high high school to become a professional dancer, a professional ballerina. Mm-hmm. And she, like all dancers, were grounded in this past year. And yeah. so, and I couldn't go to figure drawing. So she did a bunch of gesture poses. Oh, nice. And sent them to me so that I had something to like do little gestures yeah. of. Yeah. Um, and then they become, they became more rendered watercolor paintings and then i decided i'm gonna do a whole little show so i did of just the of lizzie's and i'm gonna dedicate it and i am dedicating it to all the dancers who were grounded during covid yeah who weren't able to dance with other people or really move through space the way dancers do because there were no facilities available to them and they had to do like Lizzie spent the year doing class by herself. Wow. You know, yeah. At home. Yeah. Using a kitchen countertop as a bar. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so I've decided the Lizzie project is going to be 10 watercolors that are like figurative pieces, 10 oil portraits, if I can get, get that get, figured get out. Get that yeah. nailed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 10 Sumi ink gestures like these on the wall that yeah. you saw at the show couple years ago yeah nice so it's the lizzie project cool i look forward to seeing all that well thank you so much for your time did you have anything else you want to share for anyone any artists listening that you'd want to any kind of ideas or thoughts that you think you'd like to push out to everyone before we go all i know is and i feel like probably most artists feel this way it's like we're so incredibly lucky to be able to do what we do. Yeah. And 
have that feeling of creating something that we're proud of and we like and surprises us constantly, that, yeah, it's just one of the best feelings. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people probably experience that. And the idea of that, I'm never going to retire. What's to retire from? Yeah, right. I'm just going to do this forever. Yeah. And it makes me so happy. That's cool. Well, I'm glad you're happy and I'm inspired by your story and uh, I love your work and I hope everyone checks it out. And um, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Hey, it's Scott. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so appreciative of your time investment in listening to these conversations that I have with these amazing people. I'm very grateful for you. And if you want to learn more about me and the podcast, just check out scottdavidgordon.com. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.